I'm Mercy Quay. And I'm John Dankowski. We've got a new podcast from the Connecticut Mirror. This season, we're going straight to the community to find out whose stories are going untold. Untold, coming soon from the Connecticut Mirror. This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. And I do want to welcome you to the first in our three-part series of special legislative preview events, previewing this big political year ahead. I'm John Dankosky here at the Connecticut Mirror. Mark Pasniokas is the Capitol Bureau Chief. He is a longtime political reporter and observer, and he's got a lot to say, and there's a lot of questions that I know that you'll have in just a little bit. Um, first, I want to start by saying the Connecticut Mirror's impact reporting is really only possible because more than 1,700 members have joined together in building this place through financial support. If you're a Connecticut Mirror member, and many of you are, thank you for the work that you do to help to create this in-depth journalism here in the state. If you're not a member, please consider joining us by making a donation through the Zoom event page. It's pretty easy to find, or by clicking on the big red button at the top of the very slick new ctmirror.org website. You can produce more impact stories and more events like this one through your support because members really do make the mirror. Uh, tonight, Ooh. Mark Pazniokas in the politics of 2022. Uh, every year is a political year, Mark, but in an even numbered year with a governor's race and a race for Senate, it's especially political. Before we start at the top of the ticket here, we start with uh, Ned Lamont and, and how he's faring and how you think he's going to fare in this upcoming election. Let's just talk about your unified theory of all this. Whenever we talk about uh, the legislative priorities in a session like this in 2022, you, you've always told me, you know what? Yeah, there's going to be priorities, but those priorities are all going to have to do with that thing that's coming up in November. So, so talk a little bit about that in, in some of your history around that. Certainly. Uh, well, my <laughs> history, I, I, will, I will acknowledge this is a bit of a milestone year for me. Uh, this will be my 40th year of covering uh, elections in Connecticut. Um, wow. I'll, I'll lean in. You can see the gray hairs in the beard, but not, not as many as mine. I know. But anyway, I know. So no, you're, you're right. So in the short session years um, and particularly when uh, really everything's on the table, uh, everything will revolve around politics. We're seeing it already. Um, the different caucuses are trying to put their stamp on different issues. The Senate Republicans who hold only uh, a, not quite a third of the seats uh, in the Senate, they are trying to put their brand on really any number of policy initiatives, knowing they don't have the votes to drive them. So we have heard from them on crime. We have heard from them on uh, mental health policy. Uh, tomorrow, uh, there's a group of uh, Democrats who will be um, taking a, a crack at a couple issues they want to highlight. But in, yes, in this short session, it is all going to be geared to what happens uh, in an August primary uh, on the Republican side, at least for U.S. Senate, um, probably not for governor, and then to November. Uh, and that will start really in earnest with the governor's budget address 
on Wednesday, February 9th, when the session opens. Um, that is a political document as well as a financial document, more so in a year like uh, this one, which is unusual. You and I have not covered uh, years in which there was a surplus in, a, in a quite a while. Yes. Conne Connecticut, as Keith will, uh, will remind everybody, Connecticut still has significant structural financial problems, but uh, this year, the, the state is, uh, is swimming in the money. There is a significant surplus, and that raises its own political challenges. Sometimes they are more uh, difficult to figure out what to do with the surplus uh, than it is when you're looking at how you fill a hole. Certainly, but if part of the, the, the calculus of a political year and making political statements, documents uh, with, with the budget, it seems as though the ability to hand out money to people for things certainly puts you in a far better position than the opposite position, which governors dating back four decades now have been in, which is, we don't have any money. How are we going to do this? How are we going to cut your taxes while we're in this deep hole? No, you're right. And so the issue will be, and, and the governor tomorrow is going to uh, give us a better idea of what tax cuts he's going to push on February 9th. Um, but yeah, he's talked about, you know, some private tax relief. There's been pressure to do more with the earned income tax credit. Um, but he also he is facing pressures within um, the Democratic coalition. You know, you have uh, members of the Black and Puerto Rican caucus who are not happy um, with what they see as the priorities so far on how to spend um, the American Rescue Plan money. Um, that will be uh, an issue in the General Assembly. The General Assembly has made clear they want to have a say in how those dollars are spent. Um, and there's, that's a tension between Governor Lamont and the legislature. The governor would like to move a little bit quicker on some of these things, but the legislature is going to have its say. Um, there is pressure from progressives on the governor to uh, adopt a more progressive tax structure. Um, the governor uh, does not want to do anything that would result in an income tax increase for anyone. That is a bumper sticker line. That is a talking point. He does not want to hand to Bob Stefanowski uh, over the summer and into the fall of 2022. Ned Lamont, before we get to his challenger, is certainly in a, in a stronger position than he was during the first year of his first term. Let's just say that. Uh, <laughs> his, his handling of the pandemic has had its ups and downs, but I think it's fr frankly fair to say that that's the case with every single governor uh, in every state in America right now. How is Ned Lamont sitting in terms of his reelection in early February, 2022? Well, he's sitting in, in, in pretty good position in a couple of ways, and then there's some vulnerabilities in some others. So um, first off, if we're going to talk about how well situated he is now, we have to at least take 20 seconds to talk about what a disaster his first year in governor was. Uh, he rolled I'm out. I'm sure he'd appreciate that. 
uh, he rolled out a very unpopular uh, proposal to re restore highway tolls in Connecticut as a way to stabilize uh, funding for transportation and to make some significant improvements. Um, and, but it, it, again, it was very poorly handled. He really did not give Connecticut a sense until several months later as to what those toll revenues would buy. And by that time, um, it really was a bit of a political disaster and he couldn't get his own party in the House and Senate to uh, call a vote on, on something. So he abandoned that in early 2020. And then a month later, uh, COVID arrived. And the governor um, very quickly uh, showed a, a different side. Um, he got to be an executive. He did not have to deal with the legislature. Um, an important task and one, quite frankly, that in his first year showed he was not terribly prepared to do. Um, like many governors, uh, he was a regular presence on television in the early months of that. Uh, he was a reassuring voice. I think most people found the polling certainly showed that. He went from one of the least popular governors in the United States in 2019 to one of the most highest rated uh, when it came to job approval um, when we got into 2020. And he's by and large continued that. He has certainly um, suffered some um, scuffs and, and, <laughs> and bumps along the way as Connecticut and the rest of the country, all of us have, uh, have quite frankly suffered from COVID fatigue. Um, that's, um, that's underselling what it means if you have school-aged children and you know you had schools that were open and closed in Connecticut. The governor pushed very hard to keep schools open. Um, that opened up uh, some tensions with uh, very influential teachers unions in Connecticut. Um, that's something he's still dealing with a little bit. But overall, um, he ended up well positioned. Obviously, there's been a backlash. Um, there have been people uh, pushing at his emergency powers, although personally, I think average voters focus more on the actual mandates and whatever restrictions in place. And right now, there aren't very many. You well, know? I, I, and that, that's the flip side of the emergency powers, right? When you take over the state as he did, the legislature wasn't in session for this long period of time. He gets these extended emergency powers, which go and go and go. You get to do things the way you want to. But then if people don't like those things, you're the only face of it. And I think that that has been a little bit of the backlash as well. He owns it. He, own, he owns all of it. And he and that look, that is the nature of the job. Uh, certainly when it comes to presidents and governors on economic issues is sometimes, particularly with governors, they have very little to do with what's going well and what isn't going well. Um, I don't think you can make a credible case that uh, Ned Lamont is responsible for inflation in Connecticut. I think there's a little thing called the Federal Reserve Board as well as a supply chain uh, that has been under unusual stress uh, for the better part of, of two years. Um, but that that's just the nature of the game. And he is the face of Connecticut government clearly at this point. Um, again, it, he has had more exposure for, for better or worse than you would normally get. 
Um, but again, it has positioned him pretty well. There is a long history in Connecticut of Connecticut voters standing by incumbents when they seek reelection for governor. Uh, the last time an incumbent governor was denied reelection uh, was in 1954, the year Ned Lamont was born. That was when Abe Ribicoff uh, defeated John Lodge. Um, so that, that certainly shows you know, a pretty long history in Connecticut. That doesn't mean that can't be overcome because yeah. gubernatorial elections uh, in Connecticut tend to be competitive. Uh, but before we get to his challenges and some of the, the splits, the interesting splits within the Republican Party, you had mentioned before the Black and Puerto Rican caucus, other more progressive members of the Democratic Party. Is there, uh, in your mind at this point with this governor, a real palpable split between the way he has chosen to govern during COVID, the way he has chosen to expend federal dollars towards certain things, the way he may approach uh, a year in which he's running for re-election, he's got surpluses, but he doesn't want to raise taxes on, on anyone. Are there splits between him and more progressive parts of the party? There are. Um, the question is, what will they do about it? Now, I think some of the tensions will go away when they do resolve how to spend the federal American Rescue Plan money. That is one of the things that uh, Jerry Reyes, um, who is the leader of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus, said um, is causing some friction between his caucus and the governor. Um, the governor recognized that. In fact, for his uh, political director, he has hired um, Brandon McGee, a former leader of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus, to be the political director of his campaign. Now, that by, by itself is not going to change things, but it, it does give the governor um, a member of his campaign staff who certainly can communicate easily with that caucus, but it's going to be delivering substance, not just having um, a familiar face um, taking their calls. Um, so I think that can be resolved. More difficult will be um, people who would really like to see a more progressive tax structure, particularly on um, upper income households. Uh, the governor has been pretty clear. Um, he supports progressive taxes, but he would like to see it uh, in the federal level. Um, because like the governor before him, Dan Malloy, uh, he is very mindful of Connecticut's ability to compete with other states. That competition involves, um, I think, reality as well as perception. You know, will um, there's been a lot of, of research about to what what will drive the wealthy away, and and most research indicates it's a whole, you know, there's a whole matrix of things before people get up and leave, but. Connecticut, you know, it's a high cost state, but it's a bargain next to New York state. You know, real estate is expensive in Connecticut, cheaper than over the line in Westchester. Cheap, cheap, cheaper than an awful lot of other places in, in the country, to be sure. So his his challengers this time, we were thinking uh, maybe a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago, that they could include Themis Claritus, uh, the former Republican leader, and Bob Stefanowski, who Ned Lamont beat last time. And now, as of today, it seems clear that it's probably just Bob Stefanowski. So tell us about Bob. 
uh, Mark, he he didn't he never went away. He kept running. He has officially uh, rebooted this this campaign for governor once again. Is there anything different about Bob Stefanowski this time around? I mean, last time it was it was pretty much about just that one issue tolls. Is is there is there more on the on the bone there this time? Well, how soon you forget it was the income tax. He was going to make the income tax go away. That was the, the central issue his first time out. He, he really made his debut. Uh, he'd, been a cam- he'd been a candidate for some months, but he, he really had his debut uh, in December, January, four years ago with Arthur Laffer, the uh, creator of the Laffer Curve. And he came out as a real strong supply sider. And his call was if we could eliminate the income tax that was created in 1991, that Connecticut's economy would take off. Now, he had several problems. The income tax is responsible for a hell of a lot of money in Connecticut. And he never explained, even if you uh, accepted the premise, which many economists don't, but if you accepted the presence that the present, the precedent <laughs> premise, premise, yes, um, that that would cause the economy in Connecticut to take off. The, the question was, how would Connecticut collect revenue? He did not want to say, well, we would go back to the 1991 sales tax rate, which was 8% and, and very high um, tax rates on investment income, uh, as high as 14%, as well as higher corporate taxes. So that was something he struggled with his entire campaign four years ago. There were there were people who thought that was sort of intellectually disingenuous, um, although he did say in his defense that it was aspirational and you he wasn't suggesting you could do it all at once. But this time his reboot is he is staying away from that kind of promise. And he's really trying, I think, uh, tap into the current political uh, zeitgeist, which is people are concerned about inflation in a way that they haven't been since Ronald Reagan unseated Jimmy Carter as president in 1980. And so that is what um, Bob Stefanowski talked about when he kicked off his campaign uh, last month. And he is really is kind of like small ball, right? He's talking about what can we do immediately to make it easier on people to uh, fill their their tank with gas, to get to work, and to buy groceries. Understanding that the Connecticut governor's office is not one that that tends to, as you as you suggested earlier, have much sway over inflation. No, but you can um, you do have control over fuel taxes. And Mm -hmm. fuel taxes tend to ripple through the economy. That's one argument. You do have control of the sales tax. Now, even though Connecticut um, is sitting on a pretty good surplus, there's not much you can do with the a broad-based um, sales tax, you know, and and Mr. Stefanowski has not been terribly specific at this point as to how he would do that. Now, one of the great advantages of being a challenger as opposed to being the sitting governor. Um, the governor on February 9th, when he talks about cutting taxes, the numbers are going to have to work. Yes. He's going to have to have a full plan. If you are the challenger, you can talk about cutting all kinds of things because, um, there's no test until, uh, the election day in November, or if you win your first budget, you know, the following January or February. 
So what about uh, Themis Claritus, who we were expecting when she decided that she was going to sort of dip her toe into a statewide race, that it would be for governor? What do you make, before we talk about her challenging Dick Lewenthal, as you've reported today, what do we make about her stepping out of this race? Themis Claritus had, I, I think, what was going to be an insurmountable problem if she had continued running for governor. Uh, she is married to uh, the senior, no, the executive vice president and general counsel of Eversource. And that's a problem in two ways. Uh, it's a state regulator, regulated utility. The governor of Connecticut is the appointing authority for the utility regulators. But beyond that, there is a real, real big problem with the optics because um, utilities tend to anger people. You know, Connecticut is, uh, electricity is expensive. Um, if it's not always on. It's not well, and that's just it. If, uh, you know, uh, during the ISAIS, uh, Eversource was criticized and, and eventually fined for what was deemed to be um, insufficient preparations. They did not have enough crews in place based on the forecast. So however it goes, you know, a, a governor is in the position to either praise Eversource or critique Eversource. And if you're married to a senior executive at Eversource, whichever way you go, you're gonna, it's going to be suspect. So that was, that was one problem. And I don't know how she's going to get around it. Um, there was speculation that perhaps Bob Stefanowski and Themis Claritas could do what Ned Lamont and Susan Weisswitz did four years ago. You know, they made it, they made a compact. They, they ran a, you know, they created a ticket and it worked very well for Ned Lamont and Susan Beiswitz. Um, and, but there, there was certainly friction between the, the two of them. And that was quite clear. And it was quite clear Sunday when uh, Claritas announced that she indeed was going for U.S. Senate instead, because uh, even though Stefanowski is sort of the only credible candidate left, um, she was very cool about endorsing him. She just said, well, whoever the eventual nominee is, I will certainly endorse. Well, well, I mean, th that um, coolness notwithstanding, I think that the announcements, including that you reported today coming out of state Republican headquarters, at least seem to suggest, okay, the good thing about this for Republicans is we now basically know what's going to happen. We're not going to have this big fight. We're not going to be slinging mud at each other all the way up through August, uh, getting ready to try to beat Ned Lamont. We probably know now that it's Bob Stefanowski. Seems as though the state party is going to rally behind him. Which will be very unusual um, unless they have had an incumbent governor, the Republicans you know, have a hard time avoiding primaries. Uh, the last election without a gubernatorial primary was when Jody Rell was the sitting governor. And of course, nobody challenged her in 2006. Um, she was incredibly popular um, and won handily. Um, so that would be, um, that would be um, of incredible benefit for Bob Stefanowski if he can avoid spending, you know, four or five million dollars or more on a primary. Um, he 
seems to be leaning towards self-funding. He promised, well, he not promised, he said he put $10 million in his campaign account and he's committed 1 million to television buys already. Um, you know, we don't know exactly how wealthy Bob Stefanowski is. We know he is not as wealthy as Ned Lamont. Uh, Ned Lamont is clearly able to spend 10, 15, $20 million on a race. He has before. Um, but um, and that that's been that was one of the to me one of the funnier angles for for Bob's kickoff. Um, you had the the wealthy Bob Stefanowski um, saying the wealthier Ned Lamont is out of touch with the middle class. Um, I, I, I yeah, I, it's interesting. I, I want to move on this in a second to Themis Claritas taking on Dick Blumenthal and what that means for the Republican Party. But just before we get off of this issue of how much money is going to be spent, we just had a question here from. Uh, it's Eva Lisa, I believe, who says, if anyone remembers the Roland Curry election, it happened on my ninth birthday. Uh, that's 1994. You'll appreciate that, Paz. Um, that that entire season had the worst mudslinging I've ever seen, Eva Lee says. And I, I guess I'm wondering what sort of a preview you may have for this upcoming year. I mean, there's a lot going on with this. Yes, there is a lot of mud that can be slung. Yes, there is a lot of, of money that can be spent. There also seems to be uh, increasingly uh, a weariness and a wariness amongst Americans about political mudslinging. And I guess I'm just wondering what you think that's going to look like, what that campaign against those two gentlemen, if that's what happens, looks like this year. Everybody says that they are tired of negative campaigning, but over and over again, it proves to be pretty effective if it's done a certain way. Um, and yes, in 1994, Curry Rowan was an ugly uh, campaign, uh, as was their second go in 2002. Um, but uh, Bob Stefanowski has indicated he is going to make accountability and integrity an issue. He has been very critical of the contract that the Lamont administration gave to a company called Semaphore. Now, at the time, the state was desperate for testing capacity uh, for COVID. And there were four companies who had FDA approved testing capacity and the state gave contracts to all four of them. Now, one of those companies, a company called Semaphore, and don't worry, I'm gonna give the short version of this, um, the governor's wife, Annie Lamont, her venture capital firm is one of the investors in Semaphore. So, you know, the, the shorthand version has been uh, Annie Lamont and Ned Lamont profited from that contract. Well, that's a very complex uh, calculation to do how one investor, including a, a very significant investor, <clears throat> and how a partner in that investment firm can profit from a particular contract. Um, so we will, I'm sure we were going to hear about that. You know, Stefanowski is going to say Lamont was basically, uh, if not dishonest, but at least um, careless about ethics and about the appearance of a conflict. Um, Lamont did get clearance from the Office of State Ethics. Uh, there were certain steps taken. And again, this is a, it's a, it's a complex question. You know, people said, um, um, you know, he profited from the contract of, 
have done something of a deep dive there. And just trust me, it's, it's hard to divine precisely what a particular investor made off of a particular contract that was let to a company in which you were invested in. Um, be that as it may, that that we're going to hear about that. Uh-huh. Um, now, will we will we hear and see a rerun of the criticism and the questions about Bob Stefanowski? His last job in global finance was as the chief executive officer of a company whose product is illegal to offer in the state of Connecticut. Um, that is uh, Dollar Financial, and they are a payday loan company. Um, now, it, Stefanowski's time as CEO there was was interesting, and uh, you know I'll be revisiting that. But you know he did make certain reforms. But the bottom line is, even with the changes he made in that company and the improved products they put together, they still violated Connecticut law, and that's that's you know that's something he's going to hear about again. So we'll see how hard they go at each other over those things, as opposed to looking at actual policy decisions about tax policy, about um, you know how Bob Stefanowski would have managed the pandemic differently than Ned Lamont did. So m- moving now to the news of today, today that we've referenced already, Themis Clarida stepping aside, saying she's going to run against Richard Blumenthal uh, in his bid once again for re-election. Uh, Themis Claritas does a couple things for Republicans here. She gives Republicans a high-profile statewide candidate that they don't necessarily always have in these Senate races, to be fair. They don't necessarily have in any of the five congressional races. There are some exceptions, and there have been some close races over the course of the last few decades. But all in all, Paz, Republicans have not fielded incredibly attractive statewide or federal candidates is Themis Claritas a change for them for the better for, from their perspective? She might be. And the, so the story that I wrote today, um, it was about Themis. Uh, it was surprising um, how unprepared she was to capitalize on really the splash she made Sunday on WTNH when she announced that she was switching from the governor's race to U.S. Senate. Um, you get one chance to launch a campaign. Um, you get attention, you tend to dominate a news cycle, and you want to be ready. You want to be ready with a fundraising apparatus. You want to be ready for a web page. And as I reported a few hours ago, um, Themis Claris is not yet a legal candidate for the United States Senate. She is yet to create a campaign committee. She has no website. She has no fundraising capacity. And so quite frankly, she has blown an opportunity to make a a splash and capitalize on the attention she got Sunday. Laura Ingraham, um, who is from Connecticut, um, the the Fox News host, uh, she gave a very nice shout out to Themis Claret as to uh, her 3.8 million followers on Twitter. Um, And Claritas could not capitalize on it. So, you know, that was starting, you know, with a big gaffe. Um, You know, she's up against one of the more formidable politicians in in Connecticut. Um, Now, the flip side of that is if you're trying to raise money among conservatives across the country, 
Um, Blumenthal is, because he is an iconic liberal senator who has been attacked many times by Donald Trump in very personal manner. Um, you know, Dick Blumenthal is a, he's a, he's a, he's a good fundraising tool if you're, if you're trying to appeal to conservatives. And that is um, something that could help her draw close to Blumenthal's uh, fundraising. Blumenthal started um, January with seven and a half million bucks in the bank. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so Themis Claritis or Leora Levy, who's a Republican National Committee member, um, a woman of some wealth, she is a very successful fundraiser for the Republicans, so successful. She was rewarded by Donald Trump with a nomination as ambassador of Chile. That was kind of late in the game, so the US Senate never got around to a confirmation vote. Um, but I was just talking to one of the consultants who is helping Levy at this point, and that person indicated that she is not uh, scared off by Themis Claritis jumping into the race on Sunday. And if she gets in, you know, you have somebody who's on good terms with Donald Trump. So does that bring Donald Trump into a Republican primary in Connecticut for U.S. Senate? Um, if that happens, that um, that injects an element that a lot of Republicans would just as soon hope would stay away. They, they would hope maybe would stay away. But the fact of the matter is, is that Themis Claritus, if she's getting tweets from Fox News hosts, or she's getting campaign contributions from somewhere in Idaho because someone can't stand Dick Blumenthal. In one way or another, she's got to answer questions about, about Donald Trump, who is at, at, at this point, obviously, angling once again to be president and has this entire apparatus behind him. Um, knowing what we know about Connecticut Republicans, but also just people in Connecticut in general, we saw the impact in the state legislature of, of Donald Trump. Republicans lost seats. Republicans and Donald Trump don't exactly mix in Connecticut, but if you're running a national campaign, as she would have to, you have to do something that appeals to Trump people. That seems like a kind of a bad mix for somebody like Themis Claritus. So Themis Claritus was a Trump delegate in 2016, but she was not particularly out front about it. I, you know, she, the entire delegation was committed to Trump who won, handily won the Connecticut Republican primary in April of 2016. Um, so the fact she was a Trump delegate by itself does not signal a lot, um, but yes, Trump's insistence that the election was stolen, this is what has continued to be a difficult issue for people like Claritas and even Bob Stefanowski. Um, Claritas has been consistent going back a, a year ago. She, her position was President Trump had every right to pursue every legal avenue. Uh, he did. He did not uh, overturn any election results and it was time to move on. And that was Themis Claritas' position in January of last year, not this year. This year, her position is similar, which is let's embrace reality. Joe Biden is the constitutionally elected president of the United States, but she's doing so in a way that does not insult um, the Republican base, at least not overtly. 
And that's going to be the challenge if Leora Levy um, invites, essentially invites Donald Trump into this race, because then the, the former president is going to insist that people say, well, do you agree with me? Am I the victim of voter fraud? Bob Stefanowski a year ago dodged that question. This year, he answered it very forthrightly. He does not believe there was fraud to a degree that changed the results of the presidential election and that he does not question the legitimacy of Joe Biden as president. Um, that may not be a startling position to most of the people on this uh, conference, but it does carry some risk with Republican primary voters. The polling is very clear that the majority of Republicans think that um, fraud tainted Joe Biden's election in 2020. So, uh, and then a last thing on this, Joe Biden's election in 2020 has led to a Joe Biden who a year into his, his presidency is at about 41% approval rating. Um, he is not viewed by most Americans, including uh, many, many Democrats, as uh, being able to handle the economy currently, to handle the pandemic currently. There are certainly some weaknesses that Joe Biden has shown. What does that mean for Democrats all up and down the, the political spectrum as they uh, look toward election or re-election this year, Paz. The fact is, it's much easier to go into a midterm election on the coattails of a president who's who's uh, uh, performing well as opposed to one who is perceived to be flagging. Well, one of the strongest trends in American politics goes back to the 1930s, and that is the party that holds the White House loses seats in Congress, and Democrats cannot afford to lose many seats since they only have a five vote majority in the House and it's 50-50 in the Senate. You know, they control it by virtue of the Vice President of the United States being the presiding officer in the tie-breaking vote. Um, so in Connecticut, um, midterms, we certainly saw a huge impact uh, in 2018 there was a very strong reaction to Donald Trump. The Democrats were energized and 2018, believe it or not, in blue Connecticut was the first time since 2008, the big Obama year, that Democrats picked up seats in the General Assembly. Um, one, you know, Connecticut's a weird state in that um, Republican, the national Republican brand has killed the, the Republicans in Connecticut as far as running for US Senate and Congress. At least that's been the history in the United States Senate um, you know, for 40 years. Um, and you know, they have not won a congressional race since Chris Shays was the last man standing. He uh, lost in 2008. Um, so it's the midterm elections, you know, usually don't swing General Assembly races to a great degree. You know, that was unusual in 2018. Um, but the Democrats are nervous. Um, we saw it during the machinations over the reapportionment, the redistricting of the congressional uh, districts. Um, you had people in what I think are pretty clearly safe democratic seats who are fighting over, you know, a few blocks moving a line here and there. Um, Rosa DeLauro, you know, was pushing very hard um, 
not to accept certain changes. In the end, um, what is at least before the Supreme Court right now, the recommendation of the special master is, is keeping a map that's you know pretty much the same that we've had for 20 years. Um, that map has produced nothing but democratic victories um, since 2006, but two of the districts are competitive. And in one of those two districts, the fifth district, there is a Republican candidate who shows some signs of being able to raise money. Um, it's a long way, you know, between now and November. Um, but the fifth district of Connecticut, at least on paper, is a, is a competitive district. It's a lean democratic district, but that is a district that um, Bob Stefanowski, for example, carried in 2018 um, when he ran for governor. He also carried Eastern Connecticut uh, second district. So that says, you know, those districts are potentially competitive. Um, right now, I don't think Joe Courtney is, is terribly worried in the second district, given that the Republican running against him actually spent more money on his campaign than he raised in the last quarter. And he's got less than 100,000 bucks in the bank. That does not bode well for the Republicans in the second district. But, you know, in the fifth district, if they catch a, a few breaks, um, that could make a difference. And, and again, given that Republicans only need to pick up five seats in Congress, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to look any, anywhere where they think um, money can make a difference. Okay, Paz. Uh, Rosalind asks us, can we expect any more legislation on climate change above Lamont's December 2021 order? If so, any expectation that anything will pass in this short session. Any thoughts about climate change or some of the other big issues that I know people uh, who are on this call are, are interested in? No, the governor seems um, uh, to be pretty well chastened by the, uh, by the idea of doing anything that can either raise the price of gasoline or is perceived as raising the price of gasoline. Um, you know, we had a great semantical debate for a year about whether TCI, the, trans you know, the Transportation Climate Initiative, would result in a gasoline tax. Um, in an election year, in a short session, I would be very surprised to see anything done substantively. I think that's going to require, uh, quite frankly, a, a second Ned Lamont term and Democrats in the legislature not being quite as, as frightened on the idea of doing something that affects the price of gasoline or electricity. That, of course, has been a fundamental you know, tension in what we do about climate change, you know, um, we've seemed to have turned a corner on the electrical part of it. Um, we do have significant renewables that are at least in the pipeline, although pipeline's a bad, bad term for renewables. Um, it's in the wind, I can feel it in the wind. Um, so you do have, um, you do have those kind of changes in the transmission of electricity where renewables are becoming more competitive. Um, with uh, natural gas, which is Connecticut's kind of transition fuel. That's how it's been described. Um, of course, um, the governor um, did act pretty decisively to make sure that Millstone was stabilized. There was some controversy over that. Was that a gift to Millstone? But, you know, Millstone obviously is still the single largest source of carbon-free electricity in the state. Um, and one of the largest in the region.
Um, Ramon asks, what's going on with criminal justice reforms this session, especially the Protect Act, which uh, was vetoed after it passed in both the House and Senate? Um, again, um, there's going to be, uh, it's going to be difficult to do anything substantively on that. So there's going to be, um, there already are indications that the Republicans are going to try to make crime a significant issue, that there is pushback to the police accountability law that was passed after uh, the, the Floyd killing. Um, and, you know, Republicans point to lower, tra fewer traffic stops. Um, it's become more difficult to recruit police officers. But I have yet to see evidence that that is different in Connecticut, which has a police accountability bill, as opposed to other states where it's just generally, it's been harder and harder to recruit police officers. It's a tough business. It's always been a tough business. And it's become even more so, um, you know, in in the post Floyd era. So the Protect Act, uh, you know, again, um, that may be difficult to do this year. Again, I, I think the election is going to clarify what direction a number of things take uh, in 2023. But three months is going to go by fast, and it's a lot of it's going to be again fighting over money. What taxes are cut uh, again, and how the ARPA money is is eventually spent. Um, but there's always a surprise or two. So you know, I, I will uh, I'll be a I will be a weasel and hedge that way. It's it's there's always a chance. Uh, Patricia is asking about early voting and whether or not it's going to become an issue in the governor's race. I mean, you you uh, talked earlier about Bob Stefanowski saying definitively, look, there was not fraud in the race for president enough to overturn the election of Joe Biden. That having been said, if he's running as the Republican nominee for, for governor, if, if, if the issue comes up about how do we vote in Connecticut? Do we make it easier for more people to vote or do we clamp down and make it harder for people to vote? Is that something that's going to come up, do you think, in this legislative session or going to no. come up in the governor's race? It doesn't have to come up legislative session because it has come up and there's going to be um, a constitutional amendment. There will be a referendum. So early voting is the less is the less controversial of the two big questions that have been on the table in Connecticut. One is early voting, and the other one is no excuse absentee ballots. Um, Connecticut is unusual in that the state constitution really limits what the legislature can do. So. There, there is, uh, there will be an early voting question on the ballot. It won't create early voting. If passed, it would allow the legislature within certain parameters to do so. But again, that would not happen this year. Um, no excuse absentee balloting, or at least um, more flexible. Um, that would require, uh, to get on the, to, to create a constitutional amendment referendum is two ways. One, you can have a supermajority in, in one year and that goes on. That failed, but it did not get a supermajority. The other way is in successive legislatures, it, can, it must pass by a majority. So it's passed in one legislature, it needs to pass by another legislature after um, 
the 2022 election and then Connecticut would Connecticut voters would get a shot at that in 2024. They couldn't change the law until 2026. So if you're looking for no excuse absentee ballots, uh, put it on your calendar for 2026 as a possibility. Now, doesn't mean doesn't mean, you know, Bob Stefanowski and Ed Lamont won't express their opinions. Um, I think Lamont's been pretty clear. He's in favor of both. Um, Mr. Stefanowski, I think, like many Republicans, is open to early voting under certain circumstances. But um, anything having to do with absentee ballots seems to be a red flag for Republicans right now. This is the sort of question that I, I know we're going to put to Keith Fanoff on Thursday, but uh, Diane is asking what should happen with the rainy day fund? Should we protect it and pay off pension and health care debt? What do we do with the fact that we've got, you know, more money than governors usually have to play with? Well, and as a result of um, a law passed in 2017, it was a bipartisan law that it does. It, there's a, a volatility um, cap and it does require a certain amount of a budget reserve to go exactly that purpose. And I believe it was $1.6 billion actually out of the last surplus uh, went to pay down the unfunded pension liability. Um, So yeah, that is in place. I don't see that certainly um, changing. And that is sort of a check and balance on this legislature in a time when there's surplus funds. Uh, Michelle is asking the question, will the January 6th committee findings influence Connecticut politics to a significant extent or any extent? Well, I'll go back to what I said earlier. If Donald Trump is a presence, either physically or just by making statements for or against uh, somebody in a Republican primary, I think that will make January 6th an issue. It will make, um, more, more broadly than January 6th, is the fact that a former president has insisted his successor was not legitimately elected. We have never seen that. That is unusual. Um, That is not a topic that a lot of Republican office holders really want to debate again. Now, I will say that there are at least three Republicans running for Secretary of State. Um, One of them has made voter fraud an issue, but I'll tell you, all three have stayed away from President, from former President Trump's insistence that the election was stolen. None of them are with him on that. Um, And, you know, most of the Republicans I've interviewed on that, even the ones who believe voter fraud is a serious issue, they do not see it as something that is capable of tilting a presidential election. You know, I think the strongest statements you see are that Connecticut should be more diligent about um, making sure its voter rolls are, are cleaned up. Um, you know, there is a pending case in Stanford of a former Democratic chair who is charged criminally, um, basically with stealing uh, absentee ballots. Um, and it was discovered. Now, the, the people who are involved in elections enforcement say, you know what, the system worked. The guy was caught, whether he was guilty of, of, of theft or not. But the fact that 
there were ballots fraudulently obtained by whomever. And it was it was caught. There are checks and balances. Um, it's funny. One of the you know a story I wrote in November of of uh, of uh, last year um, was uh, actually I'm sorry, November of 2020. Um, it was. It's hard, it's hard to tell these days. It, isn't it? really. I mean, God, it just, it just all runs together. Room. I haven't left this room in two years. I don't know why I'm wearing a sport coat. Um, but. You know, I wrote a story that said voter fraud is real. It's just not to the extent that Donald Trump thinks it is. Um, and that became um, a story that had a long shelf life for us. It was, you know, it was, you know, 100,000 people all over the country. That, you know, because every time you, if you Googled, is voter fraud real? Yeah. That story would come up first. So, but I think, I think some of the, um, uh, the Trump people were disappointed to, to see my my finding in that respect. Uh, because you mentioned the Secretary of, of State's race, uh, somebody had been asking about underticket races. Is there anything interesting at all to look at in any of the statewide races, or a, anything happening that you think is that is interesting that we haven't talked about yet? Um, we mentioned, for instance, the Fifth Congressional District. You just mentioned the Secretary of State's race. Is there anything that you think people should be watching out for this political year that we haven't talked about yet? Well, the Republicans right now don't have candidates yet um, for lieutenant governor, for controller, for attorney general, uh, and treasurer, I believe. I haven't, I, got, I, I may be wrong on one of those, but I, I do know that I'm going to talk to Ben Proto again today in the Republican state chair. And he, and he said, you know, he's confident they will have credible candidates in all five congressional districts, as well as the entire underticket. But one of the things that is different this time, um, you know, Connecticut has um, kind of a two-headed approach to Lieutenant Governor. Um, when it comes to seeking a party nomination, uh, you run separately from the office of governor, but once you win the nomination, um, you you know the voters cast one vote for governor and lieutenant governor. So, you know we have had some shotgun marriages, um, certainly on the Republican side. Um, four years ago, Bob Stefanowski did not pick a running mate. Um, um, Senator Joe Markley um, won a three-way primary, and. You know, he ended up as the running mate. Um, so it's it's unclear if Stefanowski will try to pick a running mate and avoid a primary. If, if you're going to avoid a primary for governor, can you avoid one for lieutenant governor? Um, so you know, I don't know on the under tickets. There's nothing that jumps out yet. Um, you have two open seats, Secretary of State, and that's the one that's drawing your attention, and then you have Controller. And it's it's not you know drawing a lot of attention except on the Democratic side. Representative Sean Scanlon um, is currently running an exploratory campaign looking at that office. So Paz, ne next uh, Wednesday when the legislative session kicks off, how do you think about your coverage in this year? We've we've talked about you know we started by talking about your unified theory of all this around around politics and the role it plays especially in an election year. But, but I guess I'm just wondering how you think about coverage of a state legislative session in a year in which politics is just going to be pressing down on everything. Well, you look at things through a political lens, but you also have to acknowledge when um, somebody is making um, a significant policy suggestion 
uh, regardless of the political benefit. Um, you know, I, I had a story what last week when the Senate Republicans um, outlined what they would like to see happen on mental health policy. Now, it did not appear to be anything that wasn't already under consideration, but it was interesting. The um, Democratic co-chair of the Public Health Committee, uh, rather than kind of mock it saying, well, there's really nothing new here. He embraced it. He said, this is great. This is this increases the possibility that we can have perhaps bipartisan action on some public health bills. They won't be huge, but you know, you're going to, there's a chance it'll be a bipartisan support for expanding um, telemedicine, telehealth, you know, what was allowed during, um, during the pandemic, but insurers have been kind of wary about, you know, covering, covering that. Um, they're looking at, again, these are not earth shattering things, but right now um, there's certainly a staff shortage in mental health providers, particularly for children. One of the suggestions is right now you must be a licensed clinical social worker um, to have your services covered by Husky, which is the Medicaid program in Connecticut for children. There are some private insurers who will um, reimburse coverage for um, somebody who is a master's degree in social work, but is not yet licensed as long as they're under. I mean, again, this is not something that's gonna change the world, but I think there are a bunch of things like that that could be important to some people. And you may see bipartisan agreement on those things, even in this very political uh, year. What a hopeful note to end on. Look at you. Let, let's, see if, let's see if Keith Faneuf can be that hopeful when I talk to him on Thursday. Good luck with that. <laughs> good, good luck with that. I want to thank Mark Pazneo because he's the Capitol Bureau Chief, celebrating 40 years of covering politics this year. Man, Paz, that's a long time. Thanks so much so, for the for the I'm extra marking hour. 40 years. I don't know that I'm celebrating them quite <laughs> yet. But thank I'm, you. I'm, thank you for the sentiment. I'm celebrating at least the 20 some of those years we've been talking together about politics. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. If you'd like to support not just programs like this, silly programs like this, but all the great reporting that Paz and all of his colleagues do at the Connecticut Mirror on the fancy new Connecticut Mirror website. And it really is cool if you haven't checked it out very much. Go, uh, go clicking around and see how this uh, site has changed. Go to ctmirror.org. You can look at it, but you can also click on the donate button to help support it. I want to thank Kyle Constable, who produces these things for us, our publisher, Bruce Putterman, uh, Beth Hamilton, of course, the editor of the Connecticut Mirror. I want to thank our sponsor, CBIA. I'm John Dankosky. Please have a safe and healthy week.